Welcome to Frontline Church South OKC Sermon Podcast. Each week we will have new sermon content from Sunday mornings, both video and audio options. Please visit south.frontlinechurch.com for more information. If you have any questions, need prayer, or have any other needs at all, please email hello at frontlinechurch.com. Thank you so much for tuning in. The scripture for today's sermon comes from 1 Corinthians 4, 8 through 21. The word of God speaks to us. Already you have all you want. Already you have become rich. Without us, you have become kings. And would that you did reign so that we might share the rule with you. For I think that God has exhibited us apostles as last of all, like men sentenced to death, because we have become a spectacle to the world, to angels and to men. We are fools for Christ's sake, but you are wise in Christ. We are weak, but you are strong. You are held in honor, but we in disrepute. To the present hour, we hunger and thirst. We are poorly dressed and buffeted and homeless, and we labor working with our own hands. When reviled, we bless. When persecuted, we endure. When slandered, we entreat. We have become and are still like the scum of the world, the refuse of all things. I do not write these things to make you ashamed, but to admonish you as my beloved children. For though you have countless guides in Christ, you do not have many fathers. For I became your father in Christ Jesus through the gospel. I urge you then, be imitators of me. That it That is why I sent you, Timothy, my beloved and faithful child in the Lord, to remind you of my ways in Christ, as I teach them everywhere in every church. Some are arrogant, as though I were not coming to you, but I will come to you soon, if the Lord wills, and I will find out not the talk of these arrogant people, but their power. For the kingdom of God does not consist in talk, but in power. What do you wish? Shall I come to you with a rod or with love and the spirit of gentleness? This is God's word to us. Hey, good morning. If you're like, hey, did Paul just threaten to spank the Corinthian church? Yes, that's exactly what he did. Uh, So yeah, it's like chicken soup for the soul right there. Hope that starts out your morning well. Uh, If we've not had the chance to meet, my name is Andrew. I get to serve as one of our pastors here. We've been in this series for several weeks now as we're kind of working our way through uh, this letter that Paul wrote the Corinthian church. So I want to say welcome to you if you're here and you're not sure where you're at with the church, you're not sure where you're at with Jesus, with Christianity. Uh, man, I, I'm really glad that you're here. I think today will be a helpful day for you to count the cost for what it is to be a follower of Jesus. There actually is a cost. Uh, there actually is fine print with being a Christian. And today is like one of those moments where we get to read the fine print together and really truly grapple with what it looks like to have a life marked by Jesus and his cross versus by what our city often loves and values and treasures. So that's kind of where we're headed today. We're glad that you're with us. Um, and I want to take a second and just pray for us as we jump in. And before I pray, I just had the sense while we were praying for the foster kids in our city, I just had this this simple idea hit my head that maybe is from the Lord, maybe for us, maybe not, um, that 
there's probably some of these kids that are actively praying that God would actually raise up a foster family or raise up a, a mom and a dad to, to adopt them. And it's just crazy to me that here we are sitting in this room, we're praying for them too. And I just wonder if the Lord might connect the dots for us today. If some of you are here and you're praying for these kids and these kids are praying actually for you uh, to maybe consider adopting. So I, I don't know, I'm, I'm, I'm wrestling with that myself. I'm convicted by that myself. So let's just offer that to the Lord and then offer today to the Lord. Sound good? Father, we just welcome your work in our life, whatever you want to do, um, even if it's not my plan or our plan, the way that you want to lead us, the way that you want to uh, tell us to do things. God, we, we receive all that is in your heart for us today. And even what it means to be a family, we offer that to you. And we ask that you would shape us and change us. Today, I pray as we are looking at this passage from Paul, I pray that you would give us not just your fatherly gentleness, we need that, we want that, but I also pray for your fatherly correction. Thank you that you are a father who loves us enough to say the hard thing. You love us enough to be gentle. You love us enough to discipline us. And we need all of that today. So wherever we are in the room, uh, as followers of Jesus, I'm just asking that you would move by your spirit through this passage. If there's anything that I say that's unhelpful, would it just be quickly forgotten? And if there's anything that really lines up with your heart, we pray that it would land and we would actually be shaped and changed by your word. So come and move in your name, Jesus. Amen. In order to understand what has gone so wrong in Corinth and why we even have this letter in the first place, it might be helpful for you to think about something that we have written out on our sign that you may or may not have noticed when you pulled in. So out on our sign, it says Frontline out by uh, 89th Street. And then right below Frontline, it says a church for the city. What does that mean? What does it mean to be a church for the city? It's describing the different types of postures that Christians throughout history have often taken with the surrounding culture that they find themselves in. And throughout the last several hundred years, 2,000 years or so, uh, different Christians in different places and different times have embodied a different type of posture to the city around them, to the world around them. So let me give you three of them. There's, there's probably a lot more, but let me just give you the three most common. The first posture that some Christians and some churches have taken is to be a church against the city. And the idea is that the city is the enemy, the city is bad, and the people of God are good. And so let's separate, let's remove ourselves from the city, from the culture, let's build walls and be antagonistic towards the city. Let's actually not care about the city. If they go to hell in a handbasket, it doesn't matter. And let's just be opposed to them as the enemy. That's an approach that uh, different churches and Christians have taken on over the last 2,000 years. The second approach is to be a church of the city. And this is what happens when you actually start to blur the boundary lines between what it is to be a follower of Jesus and what it is to not be a follower of Jesus. And those two things start to look identical to one another. And a church that's of the city starts to have their values their vision, their idea of wisdom, their idea of what the good life is all about, their ethics, now shaped and informed by the city to where they no longer look any different as quote-unquote followers of Jesus versus those who are not. They just look like the city 
that they're in. And then finally, there's churches that are for the city. And what's being described here is this thing where the church is saying, we are submitted to Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. We are submitted to the Word of God as Scripture in our lives to shape us and to form us. We are the unique people of God in this world, but we're also sent into the world. We're actually sent to love the city, to serve the city, to be a blessing to the city, to see the city around us and the culture around us really thrive and flourish as we carry out the one another commands of Scripture and the different things that Jesus has called us to. And this is really challenging because you're, it's easier to retreat or it's easier to synchronize with the culture. It's really hard to maintain a unique identity and yet have your marriage or your singleness or your sexuality, or gender, or your approach to money, or possessions, or your vision for life, all of that to be different than the people that you're around, and yet still somehow stay engaged. That's our desire at Frontline. And one of the things that we've said again and again over the last year or two is that we are desiring not to be culturally relevant, but to be gospel resilient. That what it looks like to be resilient in the gospel in a moment like ours has a lot of power, and it's actually unhelpful to try to be relevant to our culture. What our culture needs is not relevance. They need to see something different than them. And therein lies the problem with Corinth. Corinth had totally obliterated the boundary lines between what it was to be a follower of Jesus and what it was to be someone in the city that wasn't a follower of Jesus. That they'd thoroughly become a church of the city. Their visions, their values, their ethics, their desires, their hopes, their dreams, their fears looked just like everybody else in Corinth. And actually, in particular, this value that Corinth had for wisdom to be seen as a wise person, to, to, to be seen as a brilliant person, was really, really enculturated into the church. And that's why Paul says this in chapter 318 as sort of like uh, the summary of his argument up to this point. He says, let no one deceive himself. The idea here is that Corinth is deceived. The, the Christians in this church, they're totally drunk on the culture in their world, and Paul is the only sober one writing to them. He says, let no one deceive himself. If anyone among you thinks that he is wise in this age, let him become a fool that he may become wise. What he's saying is that the chasm between the wisdom of God and the wisdom of the world is so giant, it's so cavernous, that actually to be considered wise by the world is to actually be a fool in the eyes of God. To be considered foolish by the world probably means that you're walking in the wisdom of God. They're so incongruent that one cannot stand the other. Does that make sense? So he's saying, let no one deceive himself. Don't be deceived, church. And that's actually why he's writing, because Corinth has been deceived. So here's what Paul is doing today. And it's uncomfortable, and it's rude, and it's hard to listen to. It's tough to swallow. Paul is showing up with a lot of sarcasm, a lot of satire, a lot of irony, and he is literally going to make fun of the Corinthians today. Now, this is something that might throw you off. Like, are you, are you saying the Apostle Paul is, is going to employ sarcasm? Yes, the Holy Spirit inspired the Apostle Paul to show up in a sarcastic way to this church and essentially mock them so that he can grab their shoulders and try to shake them out of their self-deception. And this is uncomfortable, it's hard to listen to, but actually this is God trying to offer an extension of his love through a corrective word that you and I need to hear as well. Because so often what happens is we take real Christianity 
We twist it, we morph it, we change it, we edit it, we delete things of it, and that's what they were doing. So Paul wants to draw a big distinction between what real Christianity looks like, what a church for the city might actually look like, versus what they think it looks like. So with that in mind, let's jump in and look at chapter 4, verse 8. This is what most commentators have described as the start of the most sarcastic text in the New Testament. You ready? Here we go. Already you have all you want. Uh, the, The Greek here literally reads, already you are full. It's like they've gone through the buffet line three or four times. You're stuffed, right? Already you have all you want. Already you have become rich. Without us, you have become kings. And then hear the sarcasm. And would that you did reign so that we might share the rule with you. What's happening here? Well, you need some backstory to understand exactly what Paul is referencing. There are at least two specific errors that Paul is addressing in this verse and in this passage that we're looking at today. The first error is what was known as, or what we would call, an over-realized eschatology. Now, I realize that sounds really nerdy and pretentious. What does that mean to have an over-realized eschatology? Well, the word eschatology simply means the study of the last things. It's describing what we believe as Christians about when Jesus returns. And what they were doing was actually believing that, yes, Jesus had died, and yes, he'd risen from the dead, but he had already fully ushered in the kingdom of God now, and there wasn't any bit of it that was not yet to come. We actually believe that the Bible, uh, the Bible teaches that the kingdom of God is here, but it's not yet fully here. They had done away with the it's not yet fully here part and had only started to believe that the kingdom of God was fully here now. Now, what that led to was this really wonky approach to life because instead of having things that you're waiting for Jesus to return to bring you, like the curse being lifted and being able to reign and rule with Jesus and being able to actually uh, not have to live in a world marked by sin, but be able to enjoy life as God designed it, they started to believe that you could have all of that that now. You didn't have to wait. You could have money. You could have possessions. You could have riches. You could have success. You could have the world pat you on the back. You could have the world give you accolades. You could try to rise to success in the city of Corinth because after all, you're reigning and ruling with Jesus. So why not reign and rule in the city of Corinth too? And this is what it led to. The second error was an obsession with the things of this world. Corinth was obsessed with the here and now. When you have an over-realized eschatology, it never just stays there. It eventually affects the way you live. And what that meant for them was, well, if there's nothing left for us to wait for, then let's just have all of it now in this world. Let's find all of our hope in this present age now. Let's adopt the world's view of wisdom. Let's adopt the world's ethics. Let's adopt the world's view of money and possessions and power. That's what was happening in the city of Corinth. And specifically, they were really wanting to look wise in the eyes of their city. They were wanting prestige in the eyes of their city, and they were wanting accolades in the eyes of the city. Now, with that in mind, notice what Paul is going to say next. Look at verse 9. For I think that God has exhibited us as apostles as last of all, like men sentenced to death, because we have become a spectacle to the world and to angels and to men. So the first thing I want you to see if you're taking notes is that real Christianity is actually a spectacle to the world. Now, that word spectacle can mean a good thing, like you're putting on a, 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 an incredible show. 
and entertaining someone, or it can be in a really negative thing, like that person looks like an idiot. And Paul is referencing the negative side of this word. He's talking about real Christianity in the city looking like something really foolish. It looks like a spectacle. How do we know that? Well, there's, there's something that gets missed here that his original readers would not have missed. They would have caught right away. In this verse, he talks about how we apostles, he says, we're last of all like men sentenced to death. Well, he's actually referencing something known as a Roman military triumph. A Roman military triumph was very common in not just Corinthian culture, but any Roman, any Greco-Roman city. Essentially what would happen is these Roman generals would be out at battle and they would have defeated their enemies and then they would have pillaged the town, pillaged all of the stuff and captured prisoners and then they would have been led back into the city and the whole city would have thrown this giant parade for them. So at the front of the line would be the Roman military generals and as they're walking into the city, everybody's cheering for them applauding them, celebrating them because they've been victorious on behalf of Rome. Then behind the Roman generals were the Roman soldiers and everyone's cheering for them, they're applauding them. Then behind the Roman soldiers, there's all the bounty of what they've captured, the wealth, the gold, the riches, the stuff from the city that they just pillaged that they would usher in behind the soldiers and everyone's celebrating like, look at what we've done to our enemies. We're mocking them, we've taken their stuff. And then at the very back of the line, Last of all, were these uh, basically prisoners that had been captured by Rome. They would have been in chains. They would have often been stripped down naked, and they're totally humiliated in shame, walking, being dragged into the city, and everyone is booing them. Everybody's jeering at them. Everybody is, is throwing accusations at them. And then guess what? They then get led into the arena, and when they get into the arena, they would either release wild beasts to destroy them, or they would have, have each other fight in like these gladiatorial battles, and these soldiers would be totally humiliated and sentenced to death. That's what Paul is talking about. Now, here's argument. He's saying that to be a church for the city, to, to, to embody real Christianity, you're actually not going to get the applause that you think of. Any applause that you think you're hearing is the jeering of the crowd at your impending death. That's a hard word. Paul's saying, hey, Corinth, all you want is applause. Like you think you're gonna be at the front of the line with the Roman generals. What if I told you that we as apostles are actually in the back of the line? And rather than being at the front celebrating our victory, the city is actually cheering us on as we head towards our death. We are a spectacle to the world. To be a follower of Jesus, and this is true throughout history, even though you don't feel like it's as true of us in Oklahoma right now, it still is that when people who are far from God see what real Christianity is all about, they see us walking in faithful, real Christianity, being a church for the city, it does not equal applause. We actually look like a spectacle to the world. This is really important for us to hear. Now, some of you are like, well, but that's just apostles, right? Like, that's the unique cost of being an apostle. You can be really well-loved and liked if you're just a normal Christian, right? Wrong. Because what Paul is saying here, remember what he had just said back in verse 6. He said, I have applied all these things to myself and Apollos for your benefit, brothers, that you may learn by us. And in verse 16 and 17, he's going to actually reference, hey, be imitators of me. My lifestyle, the way that I'm living, imitate me as I'm imitating Jesus. So in other words, like the apostles go, so go the church. If they treated your leaders this way, why would you and I expect any sort of different treatment? 
That leads to the second thing I want you to see. Look at verse 10. We are fools for Christ's sake, but you are wise in Christ. We are weak, but you are strong. You are held in honor, but we in disrepute. To the present hour, we hunger and we thirst. We are poorly dressed and buffeted and homeless. And we labor working with our own hands. When reviled, we bless. When persecuted, we endure. When slandered, we entreat. We have become and are still like the scum of the world, the refuse of all things. The second thing I want you to see is that real Christianity is shaped by the cross. Real Christianity is shaped by the cross. In other words, the cross is not just something that we believe as the entryway into Christianity, but it then shapes the worldview in which we operate in this life. That if Jesus actually didn't head for victory as we define victory, or head for power as we define power, or head for worldly success as we often define it, but instead headed for the cross, then this should actually shape our worldview for what we think of when we think of victory power, and strength, that all all of our life is shaped by the cross. Look at this list here. I want to just show you the juxtaposition here that Paul is doing. This is really interesting, that he is basically holding up the Corinthian way, how they are living, who they are, what they value, versus Paul as an apostle. He says, y'all are stuffed, like you've already, you, you have all that you want, and yet we, we hunger and thirst. You guys are rich, but us, we're poor. We're buffeted. We're homeless. We're poorly dressed. You guys are kings, but we are last of all, like men sentenced to death. You guys are wise. You're like That's all you care about is looking like you're wise in the eyes of Corinth. We are fools for Christ. You guys are strong, but we are weak. You are held in honor by the city, and yet us, we are held in disrepute. And then he goes on. He says that we're reviled, we're persecuted, we're slandered, we're the scum of the world, the refuse of all things. That's a hard word, right? And yet, here's the point. Look at this list, and I want you to ask this question. Which side looks more like Jesus and his life? Which one of these actually represents the life that Jesus lived while he was on this earth? It's not the Corinthian side. It's actually Paul's side. Andrew Wilson says it this way. He says, what Paul is doing without ever mentioning the word cross is reminding them that at the heart of the gospel is the shamed, brutalized, and humiliated son of man who had nowhere to lay his head and that Christians take their cue from him rather than from those whom the world elevates and admires. The Corinthians, in seeking and promoting the wisdom, honor, wealth, and status of the world, have Christianity completely upside down. What Paul is doing here is actually flipping Christianity right side up and saying, you've missed it. I don't know where you've missed it, but you've missed it. And all you care about, all you value is this left side of the column here, wanting wealth and possessions and riches and honor and success and pats on the back and prestige from the culture. And yet we are like men sentenced to death because we are following our Lord and master who was himself sentenced to death on a cross. This is real Christianity. It's shaped like the cross. Paul's logic is really simple to follow, but really hard to hear. It's that if they treated Jesus, our Lord and master, this way, if they treated apostles and leaders of his church this way, why would you and I expect a life that's any different? Why would we expect something any different? 
And here's where we have to grapple with how the city, the culture, the world has crept its way into our hearts. I was so convicted by this over the last couple of weeks. I, I want to throw this list up one more time for you to look at. And I want you to just di- diagnose yourself, if you can, for just a minute. Which side is your aspiration as an American Christian? Like, which is the side that you're really fighting for? Like, are you really fighting for the, like, I want to be stuffed. I want to have all that I want. I want to be rich. I want to be like a king or a queen. I, I want to be seen as wise in this world. I want to be strong. I want to be held in honor by my associates and my coworkers and people that are far from God. I want people to applaud my... Where does this hit in us? Actually, what Paul is saying is that the way of the cross is the way of Christianity. That it's not one of worldly strength and power and success... It's one of derision and shame and one of suffering and persecution. Now, here's, here's what that doesn't mean. That doesn't mean that every single Christian is going to be homeless like Paul. That doesn't mean that every single Christian has to go plant churches like Paul. That doesn't mean that every single Christian has to uh, get their head chopped off like Paul did for being a follower of Jesus. But friends, there are inescapable costs with being a follower of Jesus that you cannot wriggle your way out of. There are things that it will cost you. There's a cross-shaped life that Jesus is inviting you to live in, and maybe it looks like not having all the money that you could have because you're a follower of Jesus. Maybe it looks like loving your enemies in a different way. Maybe it looks like actually not trying to get the world around you to like you and pat you on the back. Maybe it looks very different than what you and I often aspire to. There are a lot of reasons to be rejected, There's a lot of reasons to be slandered. There's a lot of reasons for people to speak ill of you that have nothing to do with Jesus. But it is a money money back guarantee that if you are a follower of Jesus, some of those things will happen. You will receive backlash from the world. And that leads me to the third thing that I want you to see, which is real Christianity responds like her master. Even still, in the midst of the pushback, the opposition, we still respond like our master. Look at what Paul says in verse 12, the second half of verse 12. He says, when reviled, what do we do? Get on Facebook and post angry posts. No, we bless. When persecuted, we call our friends and gossip. No, we endure. When slandered, we entreat. In other words, he's saying that we take our cue from our Lord and Master, not just in his way of suffering, but also in the way that he treated the world while he was experiencing their suffering. I love this. This is literally taken straight from the mouth of Jesus. In Luke chapter 6, the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says this. He says, but I say to you who hear, love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who abuse you. You will not find one counselor in our city that's going to tell you to do that. And by the way, I'm not talking about abusive marriages. If you're in an abusive marriage, you need to like reach out to one of your pastors. Get with us. We will help you. We will figure that out. That is not what Paul's describing. Here's what he's saying, though. People in the city will abuse you. People in the city will hate you. People in the city will revile you. They'll speak evil against you. And here's Paul's point. It's actually okay to be a Christian. Let me like help some of you like get this like get this weird pressure off your shoulders. Some of you feel bad that in your life you have enemies. I have enemies in my life. I actually have people that I would label as an enemy. I have there's men and women in my life that it's like I think they're my enemy. It's okay to have enemies, but it's actually just not okay to hate our enemies. 
We're called to love them and to bless them and to pray for them and do good for them. So it's okay to have enemies. It's okay to have people that are like, yeah, I think they're out for my destruction. We just can't be out for their destruction. We actually have to respond like our Lord and Savior who is willing to lay his life down for his enemies, to serve them, to bless them, to pray for them. So friends, this is not calling us to have like this martyr, woe is me complex with our culture. This is not causing us to you know, constantly be pointing out all the persecution that we're receiving. None of that. This is just sobering us up. Remember Paul's whole point. Don't be deceived. Just because you think the world's going to like you because you're doing all this good in the city doesn't actually mean they will. You're like men sentenced to death. You're in the last of the line. They're cheering your death on and yet still do good to them. Bless them. Respond like your master. And that leads me to the last thing that I want you to see, which is really important. It's connected to that. Uh, Number four, real Christianity is like scum to the world. Real Christianity is like scum to the world. Notice what Paul says in verse 13. He says, we have become and are still like the scum of the world, the refuse of all things. Now, this may be the most jarring, unflattering metaphor for the church that I think exists in the New Testament. I tend to gravitate towards more positive metaphors for the church. Like the church is the bride of Christ. We're this beautiful bride of Christ, right? The church is the family of God, you know? The church is this temple of the Holy Spirit. Like I tend to gravitate towards the positive metaphors, but one that I avoid like the plague is the church is like scum of the world, right? It's like, ugh, I don't really like that. What is scum? Well, in Greek, the word that Paul is referencing, the, the idea here is like, you know when you're doing the dishes and all the junk and the, the, the stuff in your dishpan makes its way into your sink? That's what scum is. He says, yeah, you are like that to the world. Uh, he, he says that you're the refuse, you're the garbage of the world. The other image here is like if you have little kids who play outside in the dirt for 47 hours like my kids do, and then come inside and you, you wash their feet off in the bath and you're like, Ugh, what in the world? It's like four pounds of dirt just came off of this child. And he says, that's what, that's what scum is. That's how you are to the world around you. Here's why I think this is so important for you to hear. I think what's happened in our current culture is that we have mistaken the idea of being a church for the city to mean something like we are a church that does activism. We are a church who just does really good deeds in the city, and even though they may hate our message, eventually we'll win them over and they will love our deeds. Maybe, or maybe not. Maybe they'll actually think that you're garbage. Maybe they'll think that you're trash. Maybe they'll think that you're worthless are you still able to do good in the city anyway? Or is the only reason you do what you do so that you get the accolades and the pats on the back? And the... That's what was happening in Corinth is they wanted applause and, and success and to be seen as wise in the eyes of the world. And Paul's like, no, actually you're scum to the world. And this is a corrective that you and I need to hear because yes, it is so good to be a church for the city that does good in the city that loves the poor. We can't not be a church that does that. We have to be like Jesus was and as he calls his church to be and as the church has historically been over the last 2,000 years. But that is no guarantee that you will win them over. That is no guarantee that they're gonna applaud you or think highly of you. Can you still do good in the city even if they think that you're trash? This is what Paul is correcting this church on. Okay, now, I'm almost done. This may be the most discouraging, depressing sermon you've ever heard, right? At least it's the most discouraging sermon you've heard in the last few weeks, I would imagine. 
Some of you are like, you know, I'm really wrestling with this Christianity thing and you are not selling me on the whole following Jesus thing. Hey, do you want to be a Christian and be scum? Do you want to be trash to the world? Do you want to have everybody hate your guts? Like, what, how, how are you? You're a terrible salesman. Get a, get a better day job, right? Here's the deal. Paul is actually approaching this church not as a guide, but as a loving father. I want you to notice what he goes on to say because Paul is trying to do something here that you and I need today as well. Here's what he says in verse 14. I do not write these things to make you ashamed. Paul's not trying to write these things to you so that you'll look at that list and go, well, my life looks more like the Corinthians than it does Paul and I better hang my head low in shame. Paul's not writing to ashame us, but to admonish you as my beloved children. For though you have countless guides in Christ, you do not have many fathers. For I became your father in Christ Jesus through the gospel. I urge you then, be imitators of me. That is why I sent you, Timothy, my beloved and faithful child in the Lord, to remind you of my ways in Christ as I teach them everywhere in every church. Some are arrogant as though I were not coming to you, but I will come to you soon. I love this. If the Lord wills, like he has so much trust in God's sovereignty. I, I'm dead coming. I will be there. If, if God wills, you know, there's always the possibility that it won't work. I will come to you soon if the Lord wills, and I will find out not the talk of these arrogant people, but their power. For the kingdom of God does not consist in talk, but in power. What do you wish? Shall I come to you with a rod or with love and a spirit of gentleness? Paul is doing what will happen sometimes in my house where I'll get a call in the middle of the afternoon from my wife and she's like, talk to your kids. And that's how I know it's bad. Talk to your kids, right? So it's like, hey, what's going on? I you know, go down the list talking to each one and it's kind of that sentiment like, hey, how do you want me to come home today? Like, am I, am I coming home as fun dad or am, am I coming home as like disciplined dad or what hat am I gonna be wearing when I come home today? And that's what Paul is saying to this church. And listen, dads are supposed to talk that way to their kids. Paul is supposed to talk this way to the church because he loves the church. And love doesn't just look like gentle words. Sometimes love looks like corrective words. Sometimes love looks like, hey, you're off base here and I'm coming home and we're gonna talk about it. Paul is actually trying to fight for this church to grow in depth and maturity, to sober up, to awake out of their self-deception so that they can be a church that actually is for the city, not a church of the city. So where do we go from here? I want to invite you to discern the difference between the countless guides in your life and the spiritual fathers in your life. I know that the idea of spiritual fathers can get blown out of proportion and twisted and weird culture, Christian cultures. But honestly, here's the problem. If I just diagnose our own church, that you and I have countless guides. By the way, the word that he uses in Greek for guides is babysitter. We have countless guides but very few spiritual fathers. We have a lot of people in our life that we look to for advice, counsel, wisdom, help on how to navigate complexities of this world that actually have no real authority in our lives whatsoever. Podcast pastors, authors, bloggers, your counselor, your therapist. By the way, I'm pro-counseling, I'm pro-therapy. You need to do all of that. But some guides are good and some guides are bad. Some guides are inviting us to live like our city, And some guides are actually inviting us to live like Jesus. And what you and I need is probably to turn the dial down on some of our guides and turn the dial up on our spiritual fathers. Do you have people in your life that are spiritually in authority over you, like your pastors, 
that love you, that are committed to you, that can say the hard thing to you when you need it, and you actually receive it. This is what it is to have a spiritual father. I think of sometimes what I felt like when I, when I was a kid and I'd had a babysitter that was like, you know, getting on to me. You're not my dad. That's what we do with guides, right? You have no authority over me, but actually you should have parents in the faith. Who are they? Discern the difference between those two voices. The second thing I want to invite you to do is to recover a cross-shaped vision of Christianity. If Jesus, our Lord and Master, was rejected, if he was betrayed, if he was hated, why would you and I expect any different treatment than him? Are we better than him? We are not better than him. Vaughn Roberts says this, we cannot leave the cross behind. We must not only continue to proclaim its message, but also expect to share its experience. Weakness, suffering, and derision, which remain very much part of life in this fallen world. What would it look like for you to just re-embrace a cross-shaped life, a vision for your life that was marked by the cross? And that leads me to the last thing I want you to see. Remember where the real power is. Remember where the real power is. Look at verse 20. I love this line. He says, For the kingdom of God does not consist in talk, but in power. The Corinthians had traded God's wisdom for the world's wisdom. And when you trade the wisdom of God for the wisdom of the world, you lose the power. You lose the power. You try to like maintain cultural significance, but you actually lose the power because it's not in talk. It's in the actual real kingdom of God that's marked by the cross. Real Christianity, living this life that Jesus has called us to live, that's where the power is. There's a story that's most likely apocryphal, but still really incredible. It's from the 12th century in which a monk by the name of St. Dominic uh, visited the Pope. And when he goes into the room where the Pope is sitting, the Pope is surrounded by all of the riches and the splendor of early medieval Rome. He's just surrounded by gold. And uh, the Pope references the story with Peter in Acts chapter three, where Peter is interacting with this beggar who is lame and can't walk. And the beggar's like, hey, do you have any money? Do you have any gold or silver? And Peter's response is brilliant. He's like, gold or silver, I have not. But what I do have, I give you in the name of Jesus, rise up and walk. And so here the Pope is sitting in this room surrounded by power and riches and wealth and all the success of Rome. And the Pope begins to boast to St. Dominic, no longer can Peter say, silver and gold I have not. And St. Dominic responds, no indeed. But then again, neither can he say, rise up and walk. And when you and I trade God's way for the world's way, Money, status, riches, applause, accolades for the way of the cross, we lose the power. The power is in the kingdom of God, not in the talk of our culture, not in the talk of our society. It's in the kingdom of God. So with that in mind, I want to invite you to stand with me.